Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. These readings come from the New Revised Standard Version and can be found on page 951 in the Pew Bible. The word from Ephesians. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Last spring, I got angry. Not just angry, a, uh, a full-throated, yelling at the top of my lungs kind of angry. I had been frustrated with so much stress going on in my life, so many pressures both on the home front and at work, that one day I blew up in front of my two teenage daughters, Grace and Madeline. They had not been cleaning their rooms like I had been asking them. Thank you for the chuckles. That makes me feel a little better. Uh, Granted, uh, they were fairly innocent. They were busy themselves. They were facing a lot of pressures at the time. It was later in the spring, toward the end of the school year. They had all sorts of deadlines and homework. Exams were just around the corner but they had still not yet cleaned their rooms after about a week of my asking them to. And I just blew up at them. I yelled in a way that I rarely yell. It was one of those full-throated, hot-blooded, roof-raising, wall-shaking, high-decibel kind of yells right at them. If there's only one consolation in the moment, it was the fact that they looked at me with this shock, this this surprise, which indicated that they weren't used to seeing me this way. But I have to say to you, whatever surprise they felt in that moment was nothing close to the surprise I was feeling in that moment of what I was capable of doing. I had forgotten that I had the capacity to express 
anger at that level. You know, anger can be scary. It can be downright frightening when you realize that you have within you the capacity for this, for this beast that, that can be hard to control, let alone tame. It can be downright scary when you feel that way. And I think that's why in the middle of this important second half of Ephesians, Paul gets downright practical and he feels it necessary to say these exact words. Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. What Paul is really saying to us is, first of all, there is nothing inherently sinful about feeling angry. Frustration is a natural part of being human. When someone hurts you, it's okay to feel angry. When you see injustice in the world, when, when innocent people are suffering at the hands of other people, anger is appropriate. And when you're frustrated with yourself, anger is understandable. So the better question that Paul would invite us to ask this morning is not, how can I keep from feeling angry? Because you can't. The better question is, how can I be angry without sinning? How can I find a healthy and appropriate way to express that deep-seated anger that is bubbling up within me in the moment? Well, because the second half of Ephesians is so practical, filled with helpful tips of everyday advice that we can apply in every moment of daily living, we thought we would make it as simple as possible for you to take home the wisdom from today's text and today's sermon in the form of an insert that is the blue sheet in your bulletin on the back side of the backpack blessing. It has on the top, live in love. Now you can choose to follow along in this insert and fill in the blanks as we go along and take this insert home with you and prayerfully practice the wisdom of Paul to the Ephesians about how you can live a life of love, particularly when you're angry. How can you be angry without sinning? The first blank, the first A blank, is awareness. Awareness. It means naming the source of what is making you angry. Moral philosopher and professor Martha Nussbaum has said that the source of anger is fear, fed by powerlessness. Your anger is fed by fear, fed by powerlessness. So that means the next time you feel really angry, ask yourself, what is it that I'm really afraid of in this situation? What's causing my fear? And why is it that I feel so powerless in this moment? And, and, and am I really as powerless as I think I am in this situation? Being aware of the source of your anger, what is making you feel both afraid and powerless, is a critical first step to being angry without sitting. The second A is acceptance. Simply means Accept the fact that you feel angry. You know, the worst thing you can do is try to ignore that anger. 
to try to repress it or hide it or keep it from view. Because you know as well as I do that the moment you try to tuck that anger deep within yourself instead of figuring out a way to express it in a healthy way, the moment you try to pretend that it's not there is that it rears its ugly head in an unhealthy way. You can't just make anger disappear. It doesn't just dissipate in the thin air because the moment you try to do that, it releases itself in unhealthy ways. It affects you physically and emotionally and relationally. I once knew a guy who years ago felt betrayed by one of his best friends. And rather than going to his friend and trying to make it right and express his frustrations and try to make things okay, he kept that anger to himself. He deeply tucked it in, trying not to show it. And what that meant was that whenever he was in the physical presence of his friend, whenever they were in the same room together, he would break out in nosebleeds. Do this for months and months and months. It is when we try to hide our anger that things could be a problem. So the last A word is important. Action. Take healthy action to do something about the anger that you feel. Paul clearly says this in verse 26. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. Don't let it linger. Because if you try to, Paul says, then you will make room for the devil. I love that rich language that he chooses. If you let the sun go down on your anger, the devil's going to come a-knocking. That doesn't necessarily mean a personified evil wearing a red jumpsuit and horns and a tail. The Greek word for devil is tempter. If you try to hide your anger, or let the sun go down on your anger, that provides a doorway for temptation. A temptation for that anger to bloom and to fester and to blossom and get unleashed in unhealthy and destructive ways. So, a few minutes after I blew up at the girls, I came back into their rooms to apologize. You know, it's really hard for parents to apologize to their kids. But I had to. I knew I had to. I didn't quite know what to say. I don't know that I said all the right things. In fact, I don't quite know everything I said, but I tried my best. I began by acknowledging my fears. I told them everything that I was afraid of in that moment, concerns that I'd been carrying in myself, in my family, here at the church. And I confessed to them how powerless I felt about things that seemed to be beyond my control. And the very last thing I said to them was, Now please go clean your rooms. (laughs) And uh, since they're sitting up in the balcony, they would want you to know that they did clean their rooms. (laughs) And they have kept their rooms clean ever since last spring for the most part. In the scripture passage today, Paul makes it very clear that there is a link between anger and forgiveness. Being angry without sinning often means offering and asking for forgiveness. Forgiveness of yourself 
and forgiveness of others who have hurt you and asking forgiveness of those whom you have hurt. But you know, forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things Jesus ever asked his followers to do. There are times when we think we're forgiving someone, but we realize we're just forgiving them on the surface level, and it's not really full forgiveness. And that's why in your sermon notes today, there's a middle section that, where we have a list of four items that we are calling the four imposters of forgiveness. The four imposters of forgiveness. And we've taken these biblical principles, we've tweaked the wording a little bit to make it a handy acronym for us to remember. R-U-I-N, ruin. I'll share them with you really quickly, and then I'll go, them, go through them with you one by one. R, refusal. U, uncertainty. I, ignorance. N, neglect. Refusal, uncertainty, ignorance, and neglect. The first one is refusal. That one's simple to understand. It simply means that you're refusing, you're refusing to forgive that person. That you are choosing instead to hold a grudge, to hold it against them, to keep score, choosing not to forgive. And you know what? Jesus would say over and over again, that is not an option. In some of the most difficult teachings he ever shared with his disciples, he would say time and time again, forgiveness is required for a follower of Jesus. How many times am I supposed to forgive someone who's offended me, Jesus? Just seven times? Nope. Exponentially more than that. Seventy times seven. You can't refuse forgiveness. You is uncertainty. Which means sometimes we don't forgive because, frankly, we are uncertain as to how to do it. Forgiveness is so hard and it's so complex, and there are a myriad number of scenarios in which forgiveness is required, so we ask ourselves the question, how? How am I supposed to forgive that person? What do I say? Do I say something first? Do I wait for a sign? Do I wait till I see that they're really sorry before I forgive them? How do we go about doing this? And that level of uncertainty becomes a barrier for us to even trying to forgive. But being uncertain of forgiveness is not an excuse to not forgive them. I is ignorance. Sometimes we don't forgive because we don't even realize forgiveness is required. We might be unaware or even naive of how we've hurt someone. We might not even realize that we've caused someone harm or hurt, so we don't ask for forgiveness. Or we might be so hurt by the other person that we refuse to acknowledge that maybe we did something to contribute to it. And so forgiveness is not practiced because we are ignorant that it is even necessary. But you know, deep down inside, there are relationships that you have with people where things aren't quite right. And so rather than skirt past them and hope they get better, sometimes forgiveness calls us to go to that person and say, you know what, something is wrong between us, and I don't quite know what. And it requires humility and vulnerability to go to that person and say, did I do something wrong? Really, please, tell me. Speak to me the truth in love. What have I done? I want to make things right. 
Or it might also require you to go to that person and own your feelings and say, things aren't right. Let me tell you what I'm feeling, and this is what you may have done to contribute to it. This is hard. We wish it could get better on its own. We wish we could just be ignorant of these tensions. But full forgiveness means daring to go deep into the conflict and with humility and vulnerability enter into the heart of the harm. And that all leads to the final thing. And probably the toughest one is N, neglect. Sometimes forgiveness happens just on the surface instead of Instead of going deeper, we neglect the deeper causes of the harm and conflict. Sometimes we think forgiveness simply means saying the words, I forgive you, or I'm sorry, while neglecting the deeper internal work between the two of you to find healing and peace. Remember, it's easy to keep the peace. It's much harder to make peace. That's why Martin Luther King once said, Peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. And justice calls us to go deeper. To not neglect the deeper tensions that are going on within the subsoil of our relationships with other people. By entering into the conflict and looking for empathetic, constructive conversations with other people. That doesn't mean this is all easy. It just means it's required. And so the final point in your notes is this. What, according to Paul, is the true biblical posture for forgiveness? The biblical posture for forgiveness. Not the imposters, but the posture for forgiveness. And the good thing is Paul gives it, right, gives it to us right out of the text. And we've tweaked the words a little bit to give you a little bit of alliterative kind of mnemonic devices. There are three ways that we can practice true biblical postures for forgiveness. Number one, live in love. Two, take the time. And three, watch your words. Live in love, take your time, and watch your words. Number one, live in love. Paul says it at the end of this scripture passage. Live in love as Christ gave himself up for us. And what this means is that you have to watch your motivations. You have to pay attention to what's in your heart. It's not enough to just say the right things or do the right things to practice forgiveness. You have to orient your heart in a way toward love. It's all about your motivations. One of the best definitions of forgiveness I've ever heard is that forgiveness happens when both people make a conscious decision that they will stop trying to kill each other. I love that. Because that requires a radical reorientation of your heart, not toward causing harm or keeping score, but loving someone. Wanting the best for them, for you, and for your relationship. It does not mean that you pretend that the harm never happened. It does not mean that you think things will go back to the way things were before, because they may not. 
It does not mean that you hope that the harm will just go away on its own, because it won't. But it means that at the core, you will choose, in your innermost motivation, a heart of love and a heart of peace. That is something you can control. The second one's hard. Take the time. You know, we wish there was a simple formula for forgiveness where we could just say the right things and then poof, the relationship is okay again. You know as well as I do that forgiveness takes time and that's what's frustrating. Because we'd like to think that the moment we have that tough conversation with that person is that the frustration will disappear. But forgiveness is a process. It is a journey. It is very likely that after you say the words of forgiveness, you will still be angry and frustrated the next day. And the next day. And the week after that. Forgiveness sometimes means taking a step forward only to see two steps backward. And the temptation, again, the word temptation, is that you will throw that whole forgiveness out the window and go back to causing harm again. But take the time. Know that it is a long, difficult journey, but it is worth it and it is required. And the third thing, watch your words. There's no time for me to list all of the biblical passages that talk about watching your words. It's one of the common themes in the New Testament. Jesus said it over and over and over again, to watch your words. It is the chief fruit of an indication of a person's spiritual life. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, it is not about what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it is about what comes out. And so Paul picks up this theme in today's scripture passages. In, in verse 25, he says, let us speak the truth. Verse 29, don't speak evil, but build others up. At the end of the passage, he says, let your words offer grace. Watch your words. Why? Well, Paul tells you why. In fact, he uses a phrase here that is one of the richest, most vivid of all the phrases he uses in the entire New Testament. If you don't watch your words, Paul says, if you use your words to tear people down and not build people up, you will, quote, grieve the Holy Spirit. You will make the Holy Spirit grieve. That's powerfully vivid language. Remember, the Holy Spirit will always be with you. God will always be with you. you. You can't lose God's presence. But Paul makes it very clear that when you use your words to tear people down, you make that Holy Spirit grieve, which means you can lose the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the last two blanks in your insert. We will never lose the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we can lose the power of the Holy Spirit when we choose our words to tear people down rather than build them up, as hard as that might be sometimes. And if you want a vivid example, if you want a recent example of the Holy Spirit grieving, then we just remember that today, this weekend, is the one-year anniversary of the events in Charlottesville, Virginia. In one of the most troubling demonstrations of anger and hatred that you and I have seen in our lifetimes. Among the white supremacists at the rally was a man named Ken Parker. 
a prominent high-ranking member of the KKK. He was there, with many others, to spew hatred of non-whites, of Jews, of, of gay people. In his own words, he, he said he was there to, quote, stand up for his white race, to save his heritage. He said he knew going into it that it was going to turn into a, a racially heated situation and things weren't going to work out good for anybody. So he was at that rally. And afterwards, Ken Parker said he was worn out, he was tired, and he was in physical pain. He was suffering from heat exhaustion and dehydration. He was doubled over in discomfort. And it was at that moment that he met a woman, a woman named Dia Khan, a British documentary filmmaker who was there to chronicle the events of the rally, a woman of Punjabi descent, a person of color. Dia Khan saw Ken Parker doubled over in physical pain and she went toward him and she asked him, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for your discomfort? Can I do something for your pain? And Ken Parker now says that little act alone planted even just the tiniest seed of doubt in his mind. In a recent interview with NBC News, in a news segment that aired just three evenings ago, Ken Parker said, she was completely respectful to me and my fiance the whole time. And so that, that kind of got me thinking. She's a really nice lady. Just because she's got darker skin, maybe believes in a different God than the one I believe in, why am I hating these people? You know, a year ago this weekend, on the Sunday morning, right in the immediate wake of Charlottesville, we gathered together in this sanctuary, and I preached a sermon that had to be radically rewritten just 12 hours before, to look for some biblical and theological framework for us to understand what was happening. And I preached a sermon based on the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, in John chapter 3. And at the end of that sermon, we were called to pray for the possibility that amid those white supremacists, there would be more Nicodemuses that might emerge over time. People who would recognize the hatred of their ways and see the light of love revealed in God in Jesus Christ and set aside their violence and their hatred and be people of light and love. Well, six months after that weekend, six months after that service, there was Ken Parker. He was still nurturing the seeds of doubt that were planted by that filmmaker that day. 
And one day, as he was walking around his apartment complex, he noticed an African-American family. They're cooking out, having dinner with their family. And Ken and his girlfriend decided to walk toward them. They initiated a conversation. The black family was cordial and welcomed them. And they talked. And they asked questions of each other. And they really listened. They really listened. Unbeknownst to Ken Parker, the, the black gentleman in that family was a pastor. The Reverend William McKinnon III, pastor of the All Saints Holiness Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, a historically black congregation. That meal, that cookout that night would in fact be the first of many conversations that the Parkers and the McKinnons would have with each other. Each time they would look each other in the eye, they would share their thoughts, they would ask each other questions, they would listen, they would learn, and they would practice empathy. And one day, last Easter, just this last April, Reverend William McKinnon invited Ken Parker and his fiance to come to worship at the All Saints Holiness Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And there, on Easter morning, amid a crowd of mostly African-American people, sat Ken Parker and his girlfriend. A change was happening in his life. And then a month later, a month after Easter, just this last May, William McKinnon asked Ken Parker to stand up before that whole congregation and offer a word of witness. And this is what he said. He said, I was a grand dragon of the KKK. And then the Klan, even the Klan wasn't hateful enough for me. So then I became a Nazi too. And he said, for a lot of people in the church that morning, their jaws about hit the floor and their eyes got real big. But after the service, he said, after the service, not a single one of them had anything negative to say. He said, they're all coming up to me and my fiance, and they're hugging me and they're shaking my hand, you know, just building me up instead of tearing me down. You know what happened? He had experienced the power of love in a community of faith that was dedicated to living in love. A community of people that knew what it was like to be angry at injustice, but knew how to be angry without sinning. It made an impact on Ken Parker. He looked at himself in the mirror. I mean, literally looked at his skin and saw that his skin was emblazoned with signs of his hatred, tattoos of a Nazi symbol and the words white pride. And so he went 
in for laser surgery and had those tattoos removed. But you know what? That was nothing compared to the change that was happening on the inside of him. Just last month, nearly a year after Charlottesville, he traded in his old KKK robe for a white robe of baptism. There he is, walking hand in hand with Reverend William McKinnon as they are walking out into the water where he experienced the waters of baptism and the grace of God's forgiveness. In that same NBC News segment, Ken told the reporter, I want to say I'm sorry. I do apologize. I know I have spread hate and discontent through this city immensely, probably made little kids scared to sleep in their own beds in their own neighborhoods. And now he has a message for white supremacists. He is absolutely clear. This modern-day Nicodemus, an answer to our prayer from a year ago, now has a message to other white supremacists. You can definitely get out of this movement. I mean, I was into it so much, it was my life for six years. I never thought I would get out. But get out. <laughs> You're throwing your life away. No wonder Paul begins this second half of his letter to Ephesians begging and pleading and imploring the people of God to choose to live in love. Because this world is so addicted to hatred, it is so prone to division, and it is so addicted to dehumanization. And, and it kind of makes you wonder, what if Dia Khan had chosen the way of dehumanization? What if, what if she had seen all of the dehumanizing happening from the KKK and the hatred and ugly, deplorable violence and chosen to respond to that with dehumanizing Ken Parker? And what if the Reverend William McKinnon and his family or his congregation had chosen to respond to dehumanizing by dehumanizing Ken Parker? No wonder, no wonder Paul is so passionately clear this morning. Be angry, but do not sin. And imagine, congregation, imagine, what if we as a community of faith and as a people of God chose to live in love and take the time and watch our words how many more Ken Parkers might God bring to the light? Let us pray. God, this is a difficult word for us. It is always difficult for us to hear about forgiveness. Because ang anger is such a natural part of who we are. But thank you, God, for a word that reminds us that it's okay to feel angry. But that by the power of your spirit alone, we have ways to express that anger in healthy ways. 
God, we know that your heart breaks at all of the injustice in the world today. You know what we are capable of in the harm that we cause each other. We thank you that you have not left us, that by the power of your grace, you always offer us alternatives to retributive dehumanization. Teach us, Lord, to live in love. Teach us, teach us to take the time and to watch our words and our actions so that through us and in us, you might bring more people into the light of love. In this room this morning and watching online, there are myriad stories of people who are having difficulty forgiving. It's hard. We wish it weren't the case, and we'd rather it just go away. But God, thank you for empowering us to forgive and to love and to find a better way so that this broken world can find healing in your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And let all God's people say, Amen.